Well, I feel like it's already been a tremendous service. I can almost just give an invitation right now. Uh, Joanna, I want to thank you. You followed Christ uh, to France. I think when others would have stopped. And then your testimony is that God was always with you. He never forsook you. And so thank you for that testimony. I was noticing uh, on social media this week that, uh, just last night, that John and Bethany Varner are celebrating one year. One year ago today, they drove out, or this week they drove from Hampton Roads to Utah, to the edge of the world, right? (laughs) To Utah in Mormon country uh, to follow the Lord. Perhaps God would work in your heart to uh, follow like Joanna Greenstreet uh, or John and Bethany Varner to go where the gospel's not named. And so uh, this has been huge encouragement to me today. And then also the singing. I want to thank you for your singing and the songs and the way they were arranged. I think it was uh, exalting Christ and Uh, As we were singing, I kept writing down parts of songs I wanted to then include in my sermon. I can't include all of them, but just rejoice in the way Jesus was exalted in the songs. I love the verse, a second Adam walked the earth whose blameless life would crush the curse. Uh, What a beautiful and powerful uh, text, and I, I hope to exalt Christ today in Genesis 26 as well. So let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. We're going to look at the the life of Isaac. Uh, Isaac is, uh, there's not much written about him in uh, your Old Testament scriptures in the book of Genesis. Uh, What's interesting about Isaac is he lives longer than either Abraham or Jacob, his father or son, and yet there's only really one chapter about him in all the Bible, Genesis chapter 26. He is uh, an ordinary son, I suppose, of an extraordinary father, Abraham, and he's the ordinary father of an extraordinary son, Jacob. (laughs) Uh, But you've got Jacob kind of, or Isaac kind of sandwiched in between here. As we continue to learn a little bit more about what became of Isaac, or the generations of Isaac, we move from his beginnings, the birth of uh, the twin sons, Jacob and Esau, to some early challenges in Genesis chapter 26. The challenges today that we're going to look at include famine and uh, fear and different foes that he'll face. Uh, These early challenges will reveal human failures in the line of God's chosen people. But those failures, again, will accent God's grace, I think not only to Isaac, but to all those who've been blessed by God's faithfulness to him. Now, before we look at the text of Genesis 26, I want to do something a little bit unusual. I want to lay a little bit of preliminary information out there for you, and I want to suggest that this text, upon first reading, might not immediately grab the attention of contemporary readers. One of the reasons this is the case is because the text is about struggles, but those struggles are famine and struggles concerning digging wells in dry, ancient Philistine and Jewish cities. So I want to ask you some questions this morning to see 
how much experience you have in these areas. First of all, are there some of you in the room that would say, you get your water from a well on your property? How many of the, uh, okay, how many would that be the case? Okay, be proud of it, okay, let me see how many, you get your water from a well. All right, not many of us, that's kind of what I thought. Uh, I'm more of a city dweller now myself as well, but I grew up in a home where we had a well. For many of us city dwellers, if we were asked, where, do you, where does the water come from, we would say the faucet. <laughs> and then if we're pressed any further than that, we have no idea. So some of you have that experience. Um, of those of you who get your water from your own well, could any of you say that you actually dug your own well? This is something you should be proud of. Raise your hand. Okay, no one wants to be pointed out. I don't see anyone here who dug their own well, so we have no experience in digging wells. And the third question I want to ask, the final question, is how many of you have actually dug in an ancient, dry Philistine or Jewish city? Any of you? Okay, where's Dr. Hassler, Mark Hassler? I think he's in the other room. Uh, I asked that question for him. So this text is about ancient places and practices. And we might not immediately relate to it. However, if we will pay close attention, I'm sure God will use this text to encourage us to trust in him as Isaac should. We're going to organize our thoughts this morning around lo the locations and the scenes in Genesis chapter 26. Uh, the locations where these early challenges occur, there are three places. They're occurring in the city of Gerar, then just outside the city, and then in a city called Beersheba. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 16, uh, the first 16 verses take place in a Philistine city named Gerar. And within this city, uh, Isaac experiences struggles. He experiences specifically highs and lows. It's like two cycles. He starts on a high, and then he goes to a low, and then he goes back to a high, and then a low again. Okay, so as we look at verses 1 through 16, We'll go through it in that way. I want to look at his first high. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oaths that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Beginning of the text here, we find or we read in the very first line that there was a famine in the land. I think that you know by now that God makes no promises to his children that everything's always going to be okay, that we won't face any difficulties or challenges. We do, and that's what Isaac faces here. 
But if you keep reading, you learn in the text that this was another famine. And as you're reading through Genesis, uh, it's been quite some time since that first famine. It's been about 60 years or so. And the first famine mentioned in Genesis is about Abraham during his life. In Abraham's life, right after he obeyed God to go to the promised land, a famine occurs that drives him out of the promised land. He goes down into Egypt. Isaac here, however, is not supposed to go down into Egypt. He's supposed to remain where he is. He's supposed to stay in the promised land and perhaps in the city of Gerar. So think of the city of Gerar. This is the same Philistine city uh, that Abraham had visited just a few months uh, before uh, the birth of Isaac, years before. Uh, On the map behind me here, I put a little box around the city of Gerar. Of special note, also on this map are two other cities. There's a little triangle near the bottom of the map. You've got Gerar, where most of the events take place in the first 16 verses, and later on we'll have Rehoboth, and at the end of the text we'll be in Beersheba. So you see these three cities. Gerar here is way to the west, though, in the Promised Land. It's in the south as well. It's near the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, so that's where most of these things uh, will take place. Now in this city, Isaac interacts with an ancient king by the name of Abimelech. Uh, Now, if you've been following in our sermons, this might feel a little bit familiar at this point. You have the city Gerar and a king Abimelech, and that should remind you of a sermon several weeks ago when we looked at Genesis 20 and 21. Okay, in Genesis 20 and 21, Abraham flees, or uh, he's interacting as well, with a king Abimelech in the city of Gerar. And so some think that this might be the same king. I, I think it's clear it's the same city. But some think it might be the same king. And one of the reasons they think it could be the same king, Abimelech, is because later on in the text, he were introduced to one of his friends, a commander of his, of his officers, by the name of Phicol. And if you go back to Genesis 20 and 21, you got Abimelech with his commander of the officer, Phicol. So you got him in both texts. However, while that could be the case, again, 60, at least 60 years separate these events. And so others think this might be a different king, Abimelech, one of his descendants. And they would say that the word Abimelech is like a dynastic name, a throne name, similar like if you're going to talk about the rulers of Egypt, you would call them the Pharaoh, the Abimelech. Uh, Consequently, the name Phicol could be a name passed down from family as well. So in ancient times, naming one's son after one's father was common. Okay, and so Phicol could be, you know, junior uh, or the third. Okay, we wonder where people like George Foreman got the idea. Okay, these are ancient practices uh, here with Abimelech and Phicol. Regardless of whether it's the same Abimelech or Phicol, Isaac is walking in the same steps of his father Abraham. Now, now to encourage Isaac during this difficult time, in the text, uh, he has a special experience. In verses 2 through 6, or 5 I should say, God appears himself to Isaac. Now, this only occurs for three people in all the book of Genesis. It occurs for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And so this is a special moment where God reveals himself to Isaac through a theophany. And I want to point out a few important aspects of what God says to Isaac in verses 2 through 5. First of all, I would point out the condition for the reception of the blessings that God promises to Isaac. Okay, so if you look again at uh, verse 2, it says, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. The condition for the reception of the blessings uh, is that Isaac must not go down to Egypt. He's to, to remain where he is in the promised land. Now, we don't hear in the text why he can't go down to Egypt. The text simply does not answer that. That might be a very logical place for him to go. During a famine, Egypt will be a place that's well watered because of the Nile, but he's not supposed to go there. He's supposed to stay in the land of promise. Second, I point out the content of the blessings that God promised to him. One thing stuck out to me as I was reading through verses 3, 4, and 5 this week was the content of these blessings seems very similar, doesn't it, to the blessings God gave to Abraham. In particular, what I want to do with you is I want to read verses 2 through 4 again, and I want you to look for the threefold blessing of land, seed, and blessing. Okay, it comes in verses 2 and 3. And then there's a promise of an oath. And then in verse 4, you see it again. Land, seed, and blessing. Look in your Bible at this summary. Middle verse 2. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I will tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you. So here comes the promise. I will be with you. I will bless you. So you see blessing. For to you and to your offspring. That could be translated seed. I will give all these lands. Okay, so you follow. Verse 3. Land, seed, and blessing. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your seed, your offspring, as the stars of heaven, and give to you the offspring, and give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So here we see this reiteration of the core of the covenant that God made with Abraham. If you want to remember the Abrahamic covenant blessings, you have to remember those three. Land, seed, and blessing. So we've seen the condition of the realization of this blessing is he's got to stay where he is, not go down to Egypt. We've seen the content of it, land, seed, and blessing, But then finally notice the cause for God's promises to Isaac in verse 5. And uh, let me back up to verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because, the cause, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is a very interesting part here. God blesses Isaac because of Abraham's obedience. God chose to extend blessing to Isaac 
not because of any merit of his own, but because he's connected with his father Abraham. Okay, and this is not an insignificant part of the text. It's because, in verse 5, Abraham obeyed. Later on, there'll be a second theophany in the text, a second appearance of God in verse 24. And I want you to notice how that appearance ends. Look at verse 24, in the middle of the verse. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. You see, Abraham obeyed God, and God not only blessed him, he blessed those who would be of Abraham's seed. Now, I want to point out one thing to you here that I think is important to point out here. I believe that Abraham is a type of Christ. That is, that Abraham points forward to a greater one who will secure God's blessing for his followers too. You see, later, Jesus comes, and Jesus perfectly obeys God, fulfilling the requirements of the law so that anyone who believes in him will no longer be under God's wrath, but will experience the blessings of God. I think the Apostle Paul is considering something like this in Romans 7 and 8. And let me just invite you to turn back there for a moment. Romans chapter 7. You can keep your finger here. But Romans 7 and 8. You, you know the way Romans 7 ends, right? That very confusing passage about the bondage that Paul is saying we experience to the flesh. Perplexing passage about our enslavement in the flesh and our inability to please God? Well, it turns at the beginning of Romans 8 to reflect upon the work of Jesus and what he was able to do. Look at Romans 7, verse 21. Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is, lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. And so as Isaac could not boast any merit of himself, God blessed him because of his connection to Abraham. We too cannot boast any merit of ourselves. God's blessings to us come because of our connection to Jesus. We read of Abraham's obedience, we just think, you know, Isaac's blessed just because he's the son of Abraham. There should be this part of us that reads this text and say, that's how I'm blessed too. 
I'm blessed with no merit of my own. I'm blessed because of Jesus Christ. Indeed, there was a second Adam who walked the earth, whose blameless life would break the curse, whose death would set us free to live with him eternally. I invite you to turn back to Genesis now for a moment. What a promise this is to Isaac, right? You're going to be blessed. There's a condition on it. There's this content land seed and blessing, and uh, it's going to be because of Abraham and my promises to Abraham. I'm sure that this promise to Isaac puts steel in his back, right? It's going to help him stand, right? God just appeared to him. One of three men in all the Bible. He's going to stand, right? Well, let's keep reading. It goes from high to low. Verse 7, below. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing, a little more than laughing, flirting, or something perhaps even more uh, indicative of the fact that they were married, laughing with Rebekah's wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. We go from the high of promise to the low of fear in Gerar. Here, because Isaac is afraid, he tries to deceive others about Rebekah, his wife, and he's eventually found out. It's after quite some time, he's finally realized the king looks out a window and he sees the way that they're acting. I want to point out a few things to you about the root problem of Isaac here, his fear. Just a few things that stuck out to me this week in verses 7 through 11. I think first, in his fear, Isaac repeats the failure of his father Abraham. To use modern language, he's a chip off the old block. Just like his dad, put in a difficult situation, he lies. Sad testimony. Couldn't help but think perhaps you're here as a parent, and sometimes you've been discouraged by seeing your children repeat your same sins. It's a warning to us as parents. Remember, our children are watching the way we respond. But in his fear, he repeats the failure of his father Abraham. I, I would also point this out. In his fear, Isaac engenders the well-being of his wife. His sin does not only impact himself, it, it, it perhaps most significantly impacts his wife, Rebecca. She's vulnerable. So instead of strongly standing to protect his wife, Isaac cowers and only thinks about himself. This is a terrible form of neglecting biblical manhood. The call of men to protect their families. So Isaac is a failure here. But then I would uh, finally add that Isaac fails in his fear to consider the power and the promise of God. 
Perhaps the greatest tragedy in this passage is that Isaac fails to consider the power and the promise of God. Despite the pledge that God had just given him of divine presence and blessing, land, seed, and blessing to you, fear gets the best of him. Instead of feeling resolve from God's promises, he focuses instead on his problems and he fails. Yet how often do we do similar things? We have the promises of God as well in Scripture, designed to give us support and strength, but how often do we turn our eyes on our own Philistines, the people or the challenges which are threatening us? Now, in spite of Isaac's failure, God provides safety and security for him through this king, Abimelech. And after confronting Isaac, King Abimelech protects him and Rebekah with a strong warning. He says, whoever touches this man or his wife will be put to death. And that leads to another struggle in Gerar. I said that there's two cycles. Remember, it goes from high to low and high to low. And so we look at the second high in verses 12 through 14. Look down at verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. The second high is not promise, it's prosperity. Remember, this was a time of famine. And Isaac is extraordinarily blessed here. The text says that he reaped a hundredfold which is a strong way of declaring God's blessing. This yield during a famine was miraculous. I mean, this was a wasteland. And he plants crops and a hundredfold return. The text also says he became rich and he gained more and more and he had flocks and herds and many servants. I'm sure at this point in the text, there would be a lot of contemporary preachers that would like to dig down here and emphasize kind of a health and wellness sort of promise. Okay. Famine, yet look what God is doing and abundantly providing. But I want to suggest that it's not best for us to do that sort of thing with this text. We must avoid moralizing the text to hear promises of our own material blessings in it. There's no promise here. That God's going to do something similar for us. No, God can provide material blessings for us if it is in accordance with his will. But there's no guarantee for us from this text that he will do that. And even in this text, we learn, as we keep reading, that God had particular reasons to bless Isaac with this abundance. One of those reasons, I think, was to make him so rich and full that it forces him to leave Gerar and to go back closer into the heart of the promised land. Okay, so the way that God accomplishes this is through another low in the middle of verse 14 through 16. Middle of verse 14. So that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells uh, that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Here, the troubling that Isaac feared initially from the Philistines does not come in the way he thought. He thought it would be because he had a beautiful wife, or perhaps because he lied. 
Instead, the trouble comes because they're jealous. They're envious of all of the blessing that God had provided for them. Earlier, the text says in uh, verse 15 there, the Philistines had done something a bit conniving. They had clogged up all of Abraham's wells with dirt as a means of preventing people from living near them in the city. That practice of clogging wells with dirt was an ancient kind of warfare practice. And in this case, it was because they really didn't want guests living near them in their city, especially during a famine. And so Abimelech says, go away from us because you're much stronger than we are. They're jealous and it pushes Isaac away. In response, Isaac tries to maintain the peace by going from Gerar to the second location to the surrounding valley around the city. Despite this move, conflict continues. Look with me at verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. Just very quickly here, in this part of the text, Isaac keeps moving farther and farther away from Gerar. And the Philistines keep demonstrating their envy. In the valley outside the city, Isaac begins redigging the wells of his father Abraham that he had dug 60 years before. But the Philistines grow more and more contentious and begin fighting with Isaac's herdsmen about the well, the wells. So Isaac changes the old names of the well. He changes them to Essek, which is a a Hebrew word which literally means argument. And then he changes the second one to sitna, which means adversary. It comes from the same root word as the noun Satan. What a name for a well. (laughs) Satan. I mean, I call my dog some names, but not that. Okay. Calls the well adversary. Things are getting really out of control. The conflict is rising, but then Isaac decides to move again to a different situation, to a place he calls Rehoboth, and look in your Bible at verse 22. And he moved from there, the valleys outside of Gerar, and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. The word Rehoboth means room or broad places. It seems that Isaac is far enough away from Gerar, that they finally leave him alone. They quit fighting him and quarreling over the wells. Uh, from my math and just looking at a map and just trying to do, you know, use the little scale thing, I think this is at least 20 miles away from Gerar. Okay, the conflict finally ceases. And so to this point in this text, we've got struggles and conflicts. Isaac's moving farther and farther away. He's 
He's acting in a very reasonable way, trying to avoid conflict, but that leads to our final location, and that is in Beersheba. And this is where we see blessings. Isaac decides not to remain in Rehoboth for long, but moves 16 miles further to Beersheba. And in this new location, God's blessing, I think, can be seen on him in three, through three means. It starts with another theophany in verses 23 through 25. Look at verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So immediately upon his arrival in this new city, Beersheba, God renews his promises to Isaac to encourage him. If you remember, after God's first appearance to Isaac, he was afraid. He feared the Philistines. So this time, God makes it very clear. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And then he roots that in a reason. For I am with you. Far as I can see, this is the very first time that occurs in the Bible where God says, Fear not, and then He roots it in that reason because I am with you. A good reason never to be afraid. As I keep reading in my Bible, I see this over and over again in Scripture. You remember the words of Joshua? God's words to Joshua Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think of the words of Isaiah. I often use this verse before I preach. I've got it especially marked in my Bible, and I'll pull it out before I preach, and I'll, I'll say these words to myself. But God to the prophet Isaiah said this, Fear not. Why? Because I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Yet this sort of trajectory or trend in Scripture, I'm with you, don't be afraid because I'm with you, that doesn't stop in the Old Testament. right? I think of what Jesus said to his followers, to his disciples in Matthew 28, after the Great Commission. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. And so this is God's normal practice with his children when they experience difficulties for him. He reassures them of his presence. He says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. Perhaps you've been overwhelmed in your own time of famine. Might not be physical, emotional trial, spiritual trial or physical challenge. Rest in God's abiding presence. What a blessing here. God appears again to Isaac, and he strengthens him in Beersheba. It seems to me that God has been moving Isaac back closer to the heart of the promised land all along the way. I think, you know, all of the clogging and the fighting has been God's way to get Isaac back to Beersheba. Beersheba was a special place of worship where Abraham lived for many years. Beersheba was a place of worship for him where he called upon the name of the Lord. 
and God had been near to Abraham. And so Isaac gets back to Beersheba. But then in Beersheba, God brings another blessing. Another blessing here. Look with me at verses 26 through 31. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We plainly see that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Lest there be a sworn pact between us and between you and us, and and, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing and, and, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed one of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. Now Isaac might have responded earlier in fear in a scenario like this one. Especially with the added presence, not only of King Abimelech, but now he's got his court official, Ahuza, and his commanding officer, Phicol. But not this time. He's been steadied by the promises of God. This time, he shoots straight with them, and he, he criticizes them for their earlier treatments of him. He's sick of their undermining schemes, all the, you know, the filling in of the wells and the fighting and ar- arguing and quarreling about them. But that's when Abimelech and his entourage, they fall all over themselves in this text. They can clearly see God is real. He's been blessing Isaac all along the way. I mean, it's been a famine everywhere, but everything this guy touches turns to water. So they request a peace treaty, and Isaac kindly agrees. I'm sure this visit would be encouraging to Isaac as well. He'd been quite vulnerable earlier as a sojourner in the city of Gerar, but now the established powers of that city come to him because he is the one blessed of the Lord. That leads to one last blessing in verses 32 and 33. What do you suppose it'll be? Look in your Bible. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba, to this day. Just when you thought you were done hearing about wells and springs of water, there's one last one. And I think it's no coincidence that on the exact same day that Abimelech and his entourage are leaving, Isaac's servants say, we found water. I get the picture of Abimelech leaving in bewilderment with a springling, springing well kind of like bubbling up with water. God is powerful enough to bring water from dry, parched wilderness. Men and women, he's powerful enough to protect us as well when we're vulnerable. Perhaps you're here today and you've started something new recently, a new family or a new home or a new job or all of the above. I would leave to you the promise that God left to Isaac. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. As we close today, in this quiet moment, it may be that you are wrestling with some hard path that God has called you to walk. 
you've been murmuring or worrying about your own difficulty and grief, perhaps now you need to give it over to God. Is there something troubling you today? If there is, would you choose right now to put it in God's hands? Would you determine now, before we rush along to the next meeting, to trust God's promises this week in the face of your own challenges? Father, I thank you for this blessed promise that you not only gave to Abraham and Isaac, but that you gave to Joshua, that you gave to Isaiah, that you gave through Jesus to the disciples, that extends to the end of the age, to any of your followers. I thank you that you are always with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. And I pray that this ancient story about famine and about digging of wells and about your abundant provision would remind us in our own set of trials and challenges that you're a real God who loves, who cares, who provides, and who is always with us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.